from the Carter Subaru Studios, this is the G and Ursula Show with G. Scott and Ursula Voitine. Good morning and welcome to the second hour of the G and Ursula Show, Leap Year Edition. Do you feel any different today, Mike? Uh, I do not, but I do appreciate getting the extra day in the yes, year because I've got day. a lot of things I still exactly. need to get done. Exactly. I haven't wrapped up February yet. Exactly. I'm not quite yet ready for March, but it is February 29th. We appreciate you hanging out with us. G. Scott is off today. Mike Lewis is in. Coming up at 1030, we are going to get into a discussion about school sports and what kind of liability schools should have when your student athlete gets injured, let's say during a practice. So we'll have a very spirited debate about that. But right now, what's new at 10. And we talked about it in our top stories. There is a bill that would have allowed cities and counties to raise sales taxes without voter approval to pay for public safety. But it is failing in Olympia. And Kent's mayor and police chief say that money is desperately needed in their city. And as promised, we said we were going to have Kent Mayor Dana Ralph join us. And she is on the G and Ursula show right now. Good morning, Mayor. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. So tell us just right off the bat, uh, you went uh, to Olympia and you were pushing for this. Why is this bill necessary for the city of Kent? So in the city of Kent, uh, we have some of the lowest staffing, the lowest budgeted staffing across the state of Washington. We've got about 1.2 officers per 1,000. And to put that in context, Washington state has the lowest number of officers out of every state in the country. So we're 51st in the nation, Washington, and then Kent is at the bottom of that. And we, um, for a city our size, we need to have about 30 to 35 more officers just to be average in the state. And what are you seeing in the city of Kent right now in terms of crime and your ability to uh, respond to these crimes? I think the biggest struggle, and, and we're seeing it across the region, we're seeing it honestly across the state, is there's an increase in violent crime. Um, and those types of calls take more, research, take more resources, more police officers, they take longer. And then as a result of that, the other types of crime, um, I hate it when people call them quality of life crimes, but my mail got stolen, my car got broke, broken into, those types of crimes that really are impactful to people our officers are not able to respond in a timely manner. So we're seeing, you know, two, three, four hours for response to those things, if at all, depending on what's happened on a shift. So when you go to to you failed in the legislature to get to to get the uh, to, yep. to get nope, the the, legis- the legislature failed Kent. Fair enough. Fair enough. What are what are the existing mechanisms that would allow the city of Kent to I mean, you've maxed out your sales tax increase from what I understand. So what do what would you have to do to get voters to approve additional sales tax in Kent? Sure. So we don't have and it's, we, we have very limited authority and uh, there's been some misconceptions around this. So I really am grateful for this opportunity to talk about it. Uh, cities can go to right now under current Washington law, a city is able to go to the ballot for a one tenth of one percent sales tax increase. So one penny on ten dollars. Uh, that's about a third of the amount of money that we need. I don't have the authority. The city does not have the authority to go to the ballot for that three-tenths of 1%. A county can go for three-tenths of 1%. 
The only other option we have is a property tax. And um, given property values and all of those kinds of things in the city of Kent, we would have had to, we could ask voters for what would be equal to about a 35% property tax increase on the portion that comes to the city. So we don't have tools. Uh, Mayor, we talked to, I believe we talked to you and we talked to the police chief. It wasn't even a year ago. And uh, we had talked about how Kent's police department was kind of bucking the trend in terms of having difficulty hiring police. And uh, I believe you're up to, what, 167 officers right now. And um, and in 2022, you guys took on a record 38 recruits. The city council had signed off on a pay raise, uh, which now I believe the minimum salary is one hundred five thousand dollars and in-state lateral transfers get a twenty five thousand dollar signing bonus. I have to ask because we're talking about a budget thing. Is there a spending issue as well? No. So the reality is we are right about in the middle again with um with pay that that's always as contracts in different cities we were the first at that level but other contracts have happened um on the numbers if you think back to those conversations we lost about 30 percent of our budgeted number of officers just like again every agency across the state so it's we use those tools early to recruit, and we were able to hire up to that budgeted level. Um, we're we're still really proud of those actions, but it doesn't get us anywhere where we need. If you look at cities around this around the state, around the region, I think um, I heard something yesterday about Everett having um, budgeted for over. 200 officers, Bellevue more. Um, so it's and and it's about resources. Um, those cities have the ability to generate more revenue. Uh, so, again, we're speaking with Kent Mayor Dana Ralph, uh, and, and you said the legislature has failed you. So it sounds like uh, you will be going back again to to ask for this. What what is going to go missing because it did not pass the legislature this time around? What are people in Kent going to feel? Response times are not going to, we don't have the ability for them to change. Um, our officers are going to continue working as as um, as much as they can. We've got lots of overtime, unfortunately. Um, and we're not going to be able to do those proactive things. What I hear from residents is, I want to see an officer drive through my neighborhood. I want uh, I want to see them come to our, to our events, you know, that actual community-type policing. The reality is we do not have the resources. Officers are going call to call. And so all of those, um, those preventative measures do not happen. Um, this bill would have also allowed us to increase our co-responder program, which is working with the fire department, social workers, and case managers, connecting people to services. That takes resources. And this bill would have allowed us to increase that to a seven-day-a-week, 24-hour program. We will not be able to do that. So if you go, I mean, there's no guarantee that if you go back to the legislature that you're going to be able to get something through uh, the next time around. Is, is this, but, and you said that the city does have the capacity to at least do one third of what you're looking for, which is three tenths uh, of a percent as opposed to one tenth of a percent, which you can actually do right now. Isn't, I mean, are we in a situation where sort of the perfect plan is is blocking any progress at all and that you could get at least a third of this? So that ostensibly means 12 officers, roughly speaking, according to the math I see here. Uh, isn't that a still an improvement over where you are? 
so it, it wouldn't get us 12 officers. It's it's under under that uh, that sort of three million dollar mark. And and what I have heard from residents, and I believe this too, is going out and asking them to vote for a tax increase that will not get them the solutions that they deserve doesn't make any sense. So the tax increase will so happen. So it's, it's kind of an all or nothing situation. The, then. We've got to be able to solve the problems. And a, a Band-Aid that's too small doesn't make any sense. Kent Mayor Dana Ralph, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Okay, let's talk about something that always makes people squirm when we bring it up, and that is death. And are you prepared for death eventually to happen? And more specifically, do you have a will? Are you asking me Yeah, I'm going to ask you specifically (laughs) right now. I'm going to put you on the spot. Do you have a will? Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, I went to an attorney, did the whole thing. And, and, um, you know, I make sure everyone in my family knows that I can modify this at any time. I suggest. So you better be and on then, your best behavior. They, they also know that there's not a whole lot there, so they don't yeah, seem don't to be. react as strongly as I would like. Okay, sorry. I don't mean to laugh, but uh, there's a new caring.com survey that says less than one in three Americans actually have a will. So you listening right now, uh, text us on the Muckleshoot Casino Resort text line, 888-973-5476, Cairo. Uh, in the interest of full disclosure, we do have a will, but it needs to be updated. And I think that's where a lot of people are, too. If you have a will, when was the last time you actually looked at it? And does it need to be updated? Uh, we, we put one together when our kids right. were f- born. And I've told my husband just like in the last week, because sadly, death has been like uh, not my own death. But, we're at but that just, age, we're right? At that yeah, age where, where, you know, anything can happen. And I told him, I said, happening this is my right. passcode for my phone. There's a lot of information in there if you want to know anything. And I said, I'll print it out, too. And I think everyone needs to have that one sheet. Uh, if you don't have a will, you need to at least have that one sheet. But I would strongly suggest you get a will. So so I'll put a clear uh, picture on this. If you don't have a will, here's something also to consider. And if you do have a will, here's something also maybe to consider, depending on how your will is written. This is something my family is running into right now, in two, with two different people. Uh, my mom, who has Alzheimer's, is unable to sort of manage her own affairs, unable to even have a conversation yes. with us. Put oh, my older, my two older brothers are 10 and 11 years older than me. Technically, they're what's referred to as Irish twins. They're 11 months apart. We can get out of that story later. But, but the the issue is that my mom, in thinking that, the, and they're both great guys, I get on with them really super well, um, they would be available to be the executor of will. And again, it might, it's not like there's a lot of money there, but there's a lot of things that are involved with their care, yeah. many, it's, all, it's all of the stuff. It's not even all about money. It's like even just, d- just other decisions that need to be made. All of the decisions yes. that need to be made. And my mom only presumed to do uh, Wayne, my the oldest brother, and then Ken. And then named no one after that. And the problem is that Wayne is in serious health decline right now. Mm. Uh, Ken is has his own health problems as well. There's no one beyond that. So what we have to do, I mean, either we can go back to a judge, which is really much more difficult yes. than you might imagine to do this when no one can testify on their own behalf. If you do not go through the list of people and and just make make a will that presumes 
everyone in the line of succession potentially won't be there and really go down that list a Great little point. bit deeper or create a, a structure because in two of my rel- close relatives, uh, we, that wasn't done. We never even thought about it until it was too late to alter it. So please, if you're doing your will, think about the contingencies and then think about the contingencies for the contingencies. Okay, so I know there's one of us that does not have a will at the moment. Yes. Yeah, I'm not a forward and, thinker. <laughs> well, um, this is not meant to this is not meant to shame. This I is know. not meant to that, that there's a lot I, of, I mean, one in three. Less I, than I've, one in three. I've thought of it. I mean, because like what would happen if, say, I get in a car accident on the way home and I'm no longer there for my family anymore? Or, you know, something happens to my wife, or God forbid to both of us. I guess I don't understand because I've never really looked at this process before. What happens, say, to my family? If I'm no longer around or my wife and I die and there's no will, like who is in charge of figuring out who takes the kids? Who's in charge of figuring out where the assets are, you know, divided to? There is is a line of there's in most states, there's a legal line of succession that the state Mm -hmm. will default to. Right. I mean, for example, again, it might not be what you want. No, it it may well not be what you want, but the state, state has a bright line distinction on where it's supposed to go. Should there be no will? Because in so many cases, honestly. When we when the story had said that one third of Americans have a will, is that what the, that's the it statistic? Said fewer than one in three. Fewer than one in three. Yeah. I was shocked it was as high as it is because I assumed that most people didn't. I didn't think about this for many, many years. Yeah, a lot until of people recently. are saying do a living trust or a, 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 and sort that's the same, exactly the same sort of thing. And exactly. so, to, to your point, that structure is there. It may not be a structure you're happy with. But there definitely that there will be a presumption of who, and that's a that's a cascading list of people who get authority over deciding what happens to you and your stuff. But that's precisely what you don't want to happen. And uh, I mean, and in your then, case, it may default to exactly. I mean, right now it'd yeah. be your spouse. So so that actually may be exactly what you want. But it's still, I would argue. As a family going through this right now, codify that stuff. It's not that expensive to get an inexpensive will that will really, really help the process. And funny enough, you mentioned expenses because 40% of people who don't have a will, according to this survey, say they think it's too expensive uh, to have one prepared. By the way, there's stuff that you can even find on the Internet that will help you. Yeah, exactly. There are there are there are. Um, Pro forma wills that you can you can actually download and use and file and they are binding although they are vague but I would argue that for as expensive as you think it is to have one it's more expensive at times not to can I just bring up one more thing because I've actually heard people say this and it's not exactly my line of thinking but there are people who say why should I care I'm like I'm dead at that point and if oh, you don't have a ton of assets, right? I don't have a lot of assets. I'm going to be dead, so it's not my problem to worry about anymore. My worries are over. What do you What do you say to that line of thinking? Um, I think that you are underestimating how many decisions will have to be made on your behalf, and people will be guessing, and you, they will have. There will be family fights. There are things that you just don't realize uh, what people will argue over. Or think what is in the best interest of this person, and it's not in writing, so one's assuming one thing and another person's assuming another. I'm in the same boat as you, Mike, and in my case, I was the basically the executor, right. both medically and financial, fa- financially for both my parents. And even as such, there were a million questions that I still had right. that still hadn't been Told and I, and I'm thankful as I shared on the air uh, in the case of my mom where she was still mentally capable to make a lot of medical decisions right. along with me. Otherwise, 
that would have been just so extremely painful to have to do that. But uh, and you mentioned, well, I don't have a whole lot of assets. Uh, and that's the mistake a lot of people make. They think, well, you know, it's not like I have a big pile of money, but there are things that, you know, whether it's the new minivan that you got or uh, you've got money saved up for for yeah. college for the kids or, or one this is kid really that, wants all of dad's fishing gear, but yeah. nobody provided for what would happen to it. And Just well, even exactly. personal keepsakes. Well, yeah. but it also I mean, there, there's a lot of other things that flow from that. So, so to your question earlier about why should I care? I mean, I mean, there's probably a legitimate argument. Maybe you shouldn't care. But I would argue that if you spent your lifetime caring for a group of people, there is no reason not to put structure in place that allows that. That care to continue even when you're not around to make decisions about it. And I'll tell it's, you, it's some, not it's not complicated. Someone who's figured it out, 509 in Walla Walla, says we have a will, we have a power of attorney, we have headstones in place in the cemetery. Kind of weird when we go to funerals. There, I've got the same thing. Not headstones, but the plot. Fund in place to cover the funerals. We have chosen the children who will be the executors. Neither of our parents had a will, and we vowed not to put our kids through that. It is exactly a, a massive right. benefit to your kids. My mom was super well Big prepared. Gift. We didn't go far enough down the down the succession line as far as being an executor. Other than that, I don't know. My mom was prepared to die at like 30. She was she's 93 now. She had everything in place. And that is a massive gift. It is such a gift. Absolutely. Okay. Still ahead. We're going to be talking about liability when it comes to student athletes and what happens when they get injured. This is the GNR Slush Show. This hour of the G and Ursula show is brought to you by Pella Windows and Doors. This is the G and Ursula show. G is out today. Mike Lewis is in. And we have two different stories right now to tell you about. And they both involve student athletes who got injured playing football. And it raises questions. They raise questions about who is responsible for athlete safety. So the first one I want to bring up is a story out of King 5 News. And it's about what happened at Shelton High School uh, and students and parents are saying that in a span of 30 minutes, at least five kids were injured during an unplanned football drill where the head football coach and other staff members pulled the kids aside and took them out of a weightlifting class, took the students to a wrestling room to practice a new tackling drill without pads or helmets. And uh, they claim that uh, one 15-year-old suffered a concussion. Another one had uh, an injury where something happened with his finger. But the parents say this was totally unsafe. The school district uh, says the the incident is under investigation. And the coaching staff members who were involved have now been placed on administrative leave. And uh, the parents say that they were scared when they got word that their kids were hurt. And then when they found out it was this unplanned drill, again, no helmet, no pads. Right. Which always makes me wonder. I mean, as a former football mom, and I remember there used to be a drill called bull in the ring. Yep. which I think is generally f- believed to be outdated now, given all of the knowledge that we have about yeah, yeah. concussions. It, it was done when I played football in right. high school, and, yeah. uh, and it's not done anymore for good reason. But then they also allow water breaks now. 
and in when I was in high school football, you would literally be water break was like a reward for doing something well. It had nothing to do with health. And I was in Modesto, California, where it was 105 degrees oh, in August what? when you would start football practice. Yeah, uh, prior to school starting. Yeah, it was uh, it was grim back then. But w- what I know also is that it's hard for the kids to speak up and say, "Wait a minute, I don't want to be part of this because they will be seen as, hey, you're not going to do the hard work, and because you don't do the hard work, you are going to get less play." time, and I think that's one of the fears as well. The other story is uh, involving a University of Washington student who um, uh, the Seattle Times is reporting is a former four-star recruit named Amika Megwa, and he has filed a lawsuit against the university alleging medical negligence. So he apparently suffered two ACL injuries and says that pressure from the coaches to play caused the second injury that he had. And so basically he says he was berated by coaches for not being willing to take part in workouts. He was eventually you know, thrown out of the program after getting his second reconstructive knee surgery. So they're claiming that doctors were not consulted about the running back's injury, even though he had complained of pain months before tearing his ACL a second time. Yeah, so this is... We're right in the midst of some pretty significant changes, I think, in the way students uh, or what the NCAA likes to refer to as student athletes, um, the way they're being managed. I mean, the NIL thing has changed, at least in terms of income, uh, what a student can get as an athlete if they are desired uh, for their image and likeness uh, to make money on that as an influencer or something along those lines. But really, the larger shift is is this is likely to end up as as if you're a Division One football player, for example, is you to move in essentially as as an employee of the school. Mm-hmm. And that is not true now, but it's getting very, very close to that point. And that would actually get them a little bit more workplace protection. I mean, some of the reasons for keeping the amateur status didn't have anything to do with this holistic, this, this grand notion of amateur sports as opposed to professional sports. It had a lot to do with not needing to set any workplace standards for what the students were doing on campus, certainly as it related to athletics. That's the dark history of the NC2A in this. In this. So in this regard, I think one, if if the if the claim is correct that, that it was coaches making medical decisions and not doctors making medical decisions, um, obviously they've got a good claim there. I would say though that that at the University of Washington, at least my li- very limited experience in some of the stories that I've covered there, they do have a fairly robust medical team. Uh, for the football team and for the basketball team, for the other sports as well, men's and women's sports. And so if this was indeed the case and they were putting pressure on an athlete to play when the athlete is injured, which no school I think is terribly above that sort of behavior, uh, it's going to be an interesting to see this good thing go through. But I do think that we are in a weird place where where we're moving very close to formalizing the relationship between the athletes and the schools as some quasi employees. Yeah, which G and I go on and on uh, about this topic because uh, G, obviously, with a son who plays for Ohio State, right. um, thinks it was a long time coming in, in where we are today, even though it's fraught with problems. But, um, and, and my feeling has always been now it feels like it's moved toward pr- basically professional athletes at the college level. Um, but Back to the injuries, because I guess at college, that's one thing. But for me, when you're talking about high school players and, you know, 
the pressures of wanting to please the coaches. At least that's what I saw in, when my kids were going through that whole thing. How much liability does a, a, a school have, in, in essence, when you do something like this? Well, and, and to, to I think you're, you're completely right. And here's the funny thing about the, the, the transfer portal, the, the licensing uh, money. It has given college athletes more agency. Right. It's given college athletes an ability to say, I'm going to a different school, maybe someplace where I get treated a little better, maybe someplace where I have a better chance of starting, maybe someplace where I can make more money, whatever. High school students do not have any, do of, these, have do not have any no. of these options. And so they are really beholden to the coaches. And when coaches decide to uh, do something like this drill, allegedly, that happened and injured kids. Um, they don't have agency in this particular case, except maybe to go to the media and hope somebody reacts yeah. strongly enough to make the school correct its there's, course. There's a downside to the money in college sports for the athletes, too, because it also gives them an incentive to play through pain or play through injury. And I don't understand why uh, at the collegiate and the professional level, uh, medical decisions and playing time decisions aren't taken out of the hands of the players and the coaches. They should be. Just like they are with concussions, right? If you see someone take a big, big headshot on the field in the NFL game, they pull them to the sidelines. A doctor looks at them, evaluates them for a concussion and says, go or no go. And the coach and the player, no matter what they think, cannot influence that decision. Now, if you have a player in, in college who has a knee problem, who's complaining of pain, Right. Who should be making the decision about whether he plays the player, it should be the physician. The it should physician. be because yeah. the player has an incentive to want to try to stay on the field because I want the playing time. I want to go pro, etc. The coach wants their good player and, and the player does not have it in their best long term interests to consider whether continuing to play is going to have a lifelong impact on them. And after these kids get kicked off the team because of an injury, their scholarship goes away. Their medical care may be taken care of. But they're not going to that school anymore, and they're certainly not getting paid. Well, and a lot of things, a lot of times, they minimize or they try to downplay their injuries for that exact reason. Yeah, uh, I mean that starts yeah. already uh, at, at the high school level. And, and, and to be clear, though, when you're on a scholarship uh, at a school, say the University of Washington or Wazoo or something like that, and you get an injury when you're playing football, that doesn't necessarily mean the immediate you're booted off the team. I, right. I'm sorry, where they actually no. do the schools do have responsibilities yes. in those. It, it's not something you can't just make that decision by road. And I agree with you. I mean, there, there, there's a lot of incentive and a lot of pressure, but sometimes there is that whole category of injuries that we both know that are, is it pain or is it injury? And and when do you when do you play through something? Because there's also, how many times has the media done this lionized an athlete for playing through pain and winning a game or oh, doing, yeah. you know, like, like that, there's a dual narrative going on here that are often in competition and often not necessarily healthy for the athletes. This is where G would be throwing his head headphones and be like, Chef, you just don't understand football. I can't explain it to you. And it's all about the money. Uh, Trevor, uh, who's been texting in, he says, uh, you sign a liability waiver to play football. And I, I don't I, in high school in right. high school. Yeah. yeah. And, and I believe that. But again, there is a responsibility on the coach's part to also not put you in unnecessary danger. Yeah. Just have the coach sign the liability waiver as well. <laughs> That's right. OK. Still ahead. We do scenarios. This is the G and Ursula show.
Scenarios is brought to you by 1-800-DUI-AWAY. It is 1047 on the Gia and Ursula show, and it's time for us to solve other people's problems with scenarios. Here we go, yo. Here we go, yo. In honor of a UK Leap Day tradition, I dug up this old Dear Annie column. I've been dating this man for a little over four years, and I feel like he will never fully commit to me. There's a six-year age gap. I'm 28. He's 34. I've always known in life that I wanted to get married and start a family, hence why I dated an older man. My thoughts were that he would be more on track for those goals than someone who was a little closer to my age. With that being said, I feel like marriage will never happen. Anytime we talk about marriage, it's, it's a rushed conversation, and it just seems like excuse after excuse. We already live together. First, he said I was too young. Then he said he's looking at rings and needs to do his research. Then COVID hit. So it's just never been the right time. He's a great guy. We all have fun together, but I feel like he'll never pop the question. Should I just go ahead and propose? Um, okay. Flip the start? script. Do you want to start? No, you go. Mine? Go ahead. Okay. Uh, <laughs> wait, wait. How old did you say she was? Uh, 28. He's 34. Okay. That's not that big of an age gap. Um my opinion is don't flip the script my opinion is he's just not into you my opinion is if he is hemming and hawing and coming up with every kind of excuse you have just laid it out for all of us and you know in your gut that if you were on the same page or at least closer to the same timeline you can't rush when someone else is going to be ready Mm-hmm. And if you kind of keep and I've seen too many relationships where one is ready and the other is not and they badger and they badger and then it sours the relationship, too. Um, if you are in a rush or if you're on a short timeline that doesn't match with his, I would move on. And maybe he will see that he made the mistake and he will come around. But you're not waiting there for something that's not guaranteed. Oh, so uh, so dump him in the hopes that it guilts him into proposing? No, I wouldn't say dump, but move on with your life. And maybe he, re- you know, and if, if if by the time he recognizes his mistake, if it is a mistake, because it might not be for him, it might just be, you're not that person for me. You know, isn't it G who says a guy knows immediately? I, I don't agree with that, that idea that a guy knows right away if you're marriage material or not. Uh-huh. Because I would not say that about women either. But, right. I mean, you guys uh, are on the it, fence, too, sometimes? Yes. <laughs> yes. Otherwise, I would have been married two boyfriends ago. <laughs> yes. I think there were at least two other guys before Mark where it was a possibility, mm-hmm. but it wasn't a sure thing on my part. And then when I met Mark, it was like, oh, no, this is the person. Let's say you, Mike. Uh, I think uh, I think she should ask. She should propose. No question. I mean, put. I mean that it accomplishes what what Ursula is saying, but it does it in a positive way. And then you just put it on their lap, and they they make their decision. It seems pretty simple. And if the person hems and haws, if they say they need to do more research about what propose means, <laughs> if they say that they can't find a or like, it's never a perfect time for no. everyone to do anything. Having kids, buying a house, getting married, all that. You just have to push ahead. You have to move ahead, or you or you. Whatever it is that you're building dies in the process. So I'd argue, ask, you'll get every answer you need by the response.
That's it. And then and then also have contingency plans. All right, if they say no, here's what I do. Yeah. If they say yes, let's start planning now. Let's hear is that you know, then you start moving it and you have to keep the momentum going, or it is just going to be that is going to be treated as a pressure valve. If the person yeah. says yes and then doesn't doesn't do anything with that information, you're gonna get by one proposal, you're going to get every question answered. See, I completely agree with you. And if you missed the beginning of the show today, Mike explained that uh, over in the UK, there's a very ancient uh, leap day tradition that this is the one day every four years where women would be allowed to propose. I think you should absolutely propose. I also think we've had numerous discussions about, hey, whether it's time for women to start also proposing to men. And we've we've agreed like, yeah, it, absolutely. Men aren't ready for this, though. I do not think men want to be proposed to, to because it takes a measure of of control of the relationship Bingo. out exactly. of our hands. Ding, ding, ding. And if I had to, I will tell you, like I had a long-term relationship before I met my wife. And if she had asked me at any point in our relationship, I'd like for you to marry me. So I'm going to get down on my knee. I'm going to give you a ring and I'm going to ask you the question. I would, I, I do not know what I would have done, yes. but the, the relationship probably would have ended at that point if I had been forced to make a decision. So far, every woman on our text line, which is 888-973-5476, Cairo, every woman so far has said, move on. They're, mm. not, they're not suggesting propose. I think they're losing their own, their own agency for proposing. I mean, it, I, don't, I, I completely disagree with the idea that only one side can propose. I don't think I think that is an antiquated way of looking it at it. It is an antiquated way. Yeah. But I think as as Chef said, even even in your case, it might have thrown you off. But again, I think she just in in, in the other thing is she entered into this relationship saying Very uh, specific uh, goals. Uh-huh. So are you really into this particular guy or the idea that he's marriage material because he's again, now 34 years old? On your other specific goals in your life, are you not taking agency to make those decisions? Make this one. Ask. You're going to get it's there is nothing there's no downside to asking. What is the downside? None. You're going you get to get the answer you don't want to hear every, that you secretly believe. Well, then you're not yes. you're getting that answer anyway. Yeah. You yeah. know, the, you're all you're you're not even getting an answer, you're exposing an answer. Yeah. Well, I'll just say Mike, that's some dangerous ground over there, but this is already spelling trouble from the inside out as soon as I hear about these commitment issues. Now, I'm not saying refraining from marriage is a bad thing though. Everybody has their way of lifestyle and goals they have in mind for the future, and it's not always a wedding with kids in a new family. Others may want to explore more and find out what gives them happiness. I would hold back on the proposal and think more about what person fits you more because sounds like this guy might be on the lookout for the escape plan if he really does want to keep jumping in and out of these decision making skills if it's hard enough trying to establish this proposal just think ahead about what other issues you're going to have in the future there you go now okay nick how would you feel though if if a woman you're dating would propose to you are you well? Uh, are you I'd be flattered. Good. But, uh, okay. Yeah, it, it would just have to depend on the circumstances, how right. long we've been seeing each other. But I am. You would have no. Issue I would not with oppose that. at all to some some a female proposing to me. No problems being emasculated like that. <laughs> <laughs> no. no, I th- I think it's cool. I think women should be able to ask. I mean, it didn't. It didn't happen they in my are. case. Yeah, able well, to ask. They, they are. But, they but, are. Yeah, but it is. Is it fully accepted by society? Yes. I would say no. I, the um, only way it's I accepted disagree. by society is if you start doing it. Yes. Right. <laughs> yeah. Jobs. If, if it was fully accepted by society, it would your be own bank account. It would proposals. <laughs> it's all part of the package now. By the Voting. way. By the way. <laughs> Good Lord. How come your partner hasn't proposed yet? How long have you been you, dating? Why don't you ask that question? 
Why don't you ask that question? Why? Why is it? Why is it? I am always the one who was asked. Who was asked? It's like, why haven't you done that yet? Maybe I have. I mean, you guys. Maybe I have. Maybe I got said no to. Maybe that happened. Oh, whoops. Okay. Time to put the pressure on her. No, there's no pressure. There is zero pressure. Anyone can ask who wants to Mike, ask. Mike, you have a wonderful partner. I, I know that I'm not, for a This is not, a, this is not a, a referendum on the wonderfulness of my partner. This is simply like, if you want to ask the question, Why ask the question. Okay, there you go. Okay. Still ahead, we agree to disagree. This is the GNR Slash. When you're stuck about the Reppin' Ranger with Silver and I, take a ride. All you six better step aside. I stay in the squad and then run away. Hi, Super is what I'll say. Oh.